Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is J.F. Dagenet, guitarist for death metal legends Cataclysm, XDO, as well as a phenomenal producer and mixer. Here goes. J.F. Dagenet, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Happy to be talking to you again. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's always cool because we catch up like uh, every year or so. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. And you just got back from tour, right? Yes, a full U.S. tour with, with Deicide together with my band Cataclysm. So exciting to be back on the stage and, and playing again and to actually complete the tour because I was really worried till it, that it would cancel right before it started and to the very end i was like okay am i packing my bags is this thing really happening and uh, we went out there and all, no no show got canceled we did every single one of them nobody got sick we made it all the way to the end so we were super proud to be one of the first metal tour to actually not cancel or or actually finish that was a, that was a cool thing yeah man i've been talking to people who are on various different tours right now and the reports i've been getting are that it's a lot more like a real job than ever before because um for the most part the bands aren't really interacting with each other uh because you know like for the most part they're kind of just staying in their own camps um there's very little interaction with the audience and man some of these tours are doing so well like i'm hearing from some people that they're having the best tours of their entire careers and you know like four band packages where every band even the openers are having like the most amazing tours you could ever imagine and so they're super nervous about it getting canceled. So they're being extra, extra careful uh, just to make sure it doesn't. Cause man, uh, after, you know, a year and a half of no tour income and then to suddenly have the biggest tour of their careers, they're, um, you know, very hesitant. How was it like that at all for you? I mean, it was a great tour. Uh, it's beyond expectation for what we normally do. And uh, so many sold out nights. I think mo like more than half the tour was sold out. And if if it wasn't sold out, it was very close to a sellout. And uh, another thing we've noticed is the merch sales are insane. We never sold this many merch, this many shirts on, on a tour, and which is also very good for for us after like 
two years of not doing anything. So it was very uh, profitable and it was enjoyable in the sense that the shows, the energy at the shows were really insane. It was, uh, it was fun. It was like a fun thing. Uh, and the bands were all excited to be there and the fans were excited to be there. It, it was just weird a little bit at first because you have all those restrictions that you have to, to comply with during the day. But then the show started and then all of a sudden nobody cares about restrictions and the masks <laughs> come off and it's a metal show, you know, and, and it feels right and everything is, is cool. None of us were too much worried about catching anything because in my band, we, we all got the, the COVID like before the tour started and it was same with this side. So there we felt a little bit like we were all bullet bulletproof because <laughs> we had our vaccines. We, we had it before. So it was like, no, no big deal. We're just going to go ahead and do this. And it, it worked, <laughs> but we did like sanitize and, and make sure like when we were in the bus, the bus was up off limit to strangers. It was only us and the crew. And uh, we made sure that every time somebody walks on, on the bus, we clean our hands, all that stuff. And so, so this way we know we're not spreading uh, any germs or at least we, we did the best we could. Cleanest tour ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <isn't> it? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite interesting, actually. You, know, you were talking about how they were the best numbers ever. And I think that as negative as COVID was for the touring circuit, in many ways, it kind of made people realize what they were missing out on. Whereas, you know, before COVID... Tour, there were so many tours happening and and bands that would come around to the same city like two to five times in a year and people would just be like, oh, I'll go and see them next time. Um, I'm busy on this day or I don't have, you know, I just can't be bothered or something like that. And I think it's actually given people perspective, which is why the shows have probably been so good. It gives them an opportunity again to see the bands and not and appreciate the fact that they're actually going to be there. A lot of people are realizing what they've been missing in their life and music for all of us is a big part of our lives so for everyone it's it's such a good thing that things are somewhat back for now and and hopefully it, it keeps going like that and they really appreciate that you're actually there and in, in flesh and blood in front of them they're like you guys <laughs> made it you're you're out here and and it was the same after the DSI tour because we played the that one that one off festival in Switzerland uh, last weekend. We f we flew there uh, on a Thursday, play on Saturday, and then Sunday we we're right back on the plane back home. That's a long way. Damn. <laughs> it was a quick uh, in and out festival, but it was also uh, a little bit of a test for us. Like, can we actually make it there? <laughs> and we were all like, let's try it. Let's book the flights. We went to the airport. We did all the. Uh, all the paperwork and the and the, the 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 tests needed for us to get on the plane and get there and actually it was not as much of a big deal as I thought it would be. Like we got there, they didn't really ask us anything at the border. It was more the airlines themselves wanted to make sure that we don't bring the the, the the COVID on the planes. So, but we had all our negative tests and the, the the we have our vaccines and all that. So it was really easy to get on the flight and we got there and. When as soon as we landed, we actually took another test to make sure we could back come back home. <laughs> Everything went smoothly, and we made it to the festival. And again, the same thing over there; it, it was sold out, and the crowd was on fire. And we were so happy that we actually traveled and made made an effort to be there. So uh, it was it was very awesome. One thing that I said before COVID was, uh, and I wasn't like I didn't say this thinking that it would ever actually happen. 
Um, I was just saying it kind of as a thought exercise. I was thinking that both labels need to go on a signing freeze, just not sign anybody for a year. And then also live shows need to take a one year sabbatical. I didn't mean it in to say that like my friends should not have income or anything like that, or that people shouldn't get opportunities. Like that's not why I was saying it. I was saying it because I thought that, um, that not having live shows for a while would help the audience appreciate what it is that live music brings to them. And also it would help a lot of bands that have members that, you know, are starting to take it for granted, which is, you know, a lot of people in bands who have been doing it for a while. I've done it. I mean, everyone's done it at some point. Yeah, of course. I mean, if you're, if you're on the road for a year and a half straight after a, a, some point, you start getting a bit jaded of the whole thing because it becomes like a real job where you're like, okay, you got to do this and, You, you miss the little things like you start missing being home with the, and, and do the stuff you normally do because the, the 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 passion of music that you that you it starts out as a passion and as a fire and then it becomes a job because you're doing it every day the exact same thing and it becomes a little bit boring but I've been guilty of that myself but I I try not to look at it this way I always try to uh, whenever we play live to bring the that fire and that passion and the excitement of being there. But sometimes that traveling gets to you and uh, you're on flights, you're on this, you live in your suitcase and all, all those things gets to you after a while. Which is perfectly normal and perfectly natural. I think I don't know a single person that it doesn't feel that way at some point who has done it. I think that that's totally natural, but there's nothing like not being able to do it to remind you of why you're doing it in the first place. No, you, you're absolutely right, uh, 200%. Because I was, I was there on that stage. I was like, wow. <laughs> we, you know, the funny thing is we were backstage and we uh, there were some other bands playing there. Uh, Rotting Christ and uh, Belfagor guys was there. And then people we know from for a long time. But we get to see each other again. And we're all like having a shot before the show. And we're like saying how much we actually are looking forward to play and, and do this. And we're like, sometimes uh, in the past we would meet at festivals and you see everybody kind of sitting down being like, ah, oh, okay, I gotta go do my thing. <laughs> But it was <laughs> totally like the opposite this time around. It was like, everyone was on fire going like, fuck yeah, let's go play. It must be interesting for people listening who have not, you know, who have dreams of doing a band or whatever, you know, having a, A production career or whatever to hear people who have done it be like yeah sick of being there or <laughs> not always feeling it but i think it's important I, i actually think it's important to be honest about it because i think a lot of people who get into it you know they quit after the first year because they didn't realize that it was actually going to be hard um <laughs> you know like, <laughs> you work you work really hard to get to this point of getting signed and finally being able to go on tour maybe a decade maybe a little more and then you do it and then you realize it's hard and then you quit i think that that's like from my observation the two main places that or two main times that bands break up or people quit are a in that first year mm -hmm. or B in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've noticed. The longest tour stint we did was from July 
2014 and we got home on December 21st. Holy shit, man. Yeah, it was um there was there was like a week or two in between that where I was at home, but it was four tours back to back. Uh two state tours then to Europe and Russia and then back to the states and it's definitely you definitely forget how to be a human by the end of a time period that long, you know, with a house and going to go get groceries in a normal way. So I think, yeah, you know, we were talking about how not having live music for this amount of time, it's not only good for the audience to reinvigorate their love for live music, but I also think it was quite, in a way, beneficial to bands to make them realise, damn, I actually miss doing this a lot. Yeah, it's it's uh, it changes your perspective when you get on the road for that long. To a degree, you... Makes you a little bit insane, like, yeah. Because you don't it turns think, you into a savage. Yeah, you don't think rationally after a while. You, you it's a, it's weird. Every day you're kind of lonely in a sense because I mean you're with the guys, but it's kind of you're secluded from the world. And then you get that moment where that one hour you're on stage and everybody goes nuts and you're you're somewhat of a legend for a little bit and, <laughs> and, and it messes with your brain on like the daily uh, normal stuff that you do. It is very, very peculiar to come back after a, a period of that time because there's nothing usual, let's say, uh, daily life about being on tour. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the things that you focus about, like, am I going to get a shower today? Is there going to be something other than bread and cheese on the table, (laughs) you know, and stuff like that. And it's just a completely different mindset. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to get back on tour for sure. I I would also start thinking things like is tonight's the night that drive off a mountain. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you put your life in that driver's uh, hands every night. That's, that's a good point. (laughs) Well, it's one of the reasons I stopped was towards the end of my touring career. I was starting to become unable to stop thinking about that. <laughs> like it was starting to really stress me the fuck out. Just driving to to my studio every single day, I see like, you know, these big uh, trucks driving past. They're driving really fast. And I get the same thing every single day when I'm just driving to my studio. Well, yeah. I mean, every time you get in a car, you know, you're upping, you're upping your chances just a little. But by being in a vehicle for seven or eight hours a day, you're multiplying those chances. But it's still, you know, still a super rare thing. But like I'm just saying, my brain was not allowing itself to chill out and just be cool with the situation. But, and I also think that that's not part of normal life to be like in motion for that many hours every single day. You sleep in motion, which is a weird thing to me as well. Like if you're, if you're lucky and you get a good driver, then it's, you feel more safe, like you said. And, and also it's, it's more stable. So you can actually sleep and not wake up from road bumps and things like that or getting pulled over by the, by the police somewhere in a random country. And they bring, they come on the bus with, with dogs and be like, Hey, everybody up. Like it happens at least once on every tour, at least every Euro tour. (laughs) Just want to say that the driver is definitely the most important person in a touring party by far. Mm -hmm. The other thing is we were on that tour, right? And and in COVID times, and you have to think like, what if the driver gets it and you can make it to the next show? So we we had to have that backup plan for for that as well and protect the driver, make sure that he doesn't get anything and or nobody gets too close to him and things like that. So what would you do? Like put him in like a bubble? 
and send him to the hotel. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, you would we would pull to the, the venue and make sure everything is, is good with the bus and all that, the electricity and water is plugged in and all that. And he's he would uh, he would jet to the hotel right uh, right after and come back right before his shift. And then when he would be there, we'd make sure that like nobody stands too close to him or or we make sure he was safe. If you were in a bandwagon or something like that in the States, then it's very possible to actually get away with that because obviously the driver's compartment is completely separate. Right, that's that's good. Yeah, and then if you just make sure that he doesn't go in the venue or she doesn't go into the venue and just send them straight to the hotel, the likelihood is that they're going to probably be safer than anyone in the touring party from from COVID. Yeah, smart. Yeah, I never even thought about that, that the driver needs to not get it. What was your backup plan? We we had a second driver ready to fly <laughs> to, to come join us if if in that case. And um, so we, we at least missed the, the minimum amount of dates. If we had to cancel one, then there would be at least one, only one lost and we could make it to the one after. That brings up a conversation that I was having with somebody a few weeks ago about how this whole thing of starting tours and canceling them, if that continues, that's going to be very destructive because, uh, okay, so for smaller tours, it's not as big of a deal, but the further up you go, the bigger the tour gets, the more of a disaster it is if you have to stop. Like corn, like when you start to get to the corn level, I think that Jonathan Davis got COVID, but they didn't stop the tour. They, I mean, they didn't cancel they just stopped for like 10 days or something and then monkey got it after that but like when you start to get to that level which there's not that many bands at that level but still at that level there's a whole industry of people working for that tour if it stops this is like a catastrophe and um with so many tours stopping partway through what my thoughts were look if we're gonna have to as like a as a community or an industry are going to have to think of how to get around this. It like can't just go about this the way that it was gone about before. And but there's some things that are probably going to have to happen that are much more like what you hear about in theater or in classical music. Uh, so for instance, in classical music and in theater, it's very normal to have an understudy, you know, if the, you know, if you have an opera and the uh, soprano, loses her voice, but you're not going to like not have a show. You're going to get the understudy and there's always an understudy. And so I was thinking, um, there's probably, obviously this isn't going to happen on like the smaller tours, but on these bigger tours, there's going to have to be understudies or back. We can call them backups, but, uh, that are just ready to go. Um, who are, I guess, isolated and just know the material. Uh, like, for instance, like, you know, um, the uh, I was just thinking there's several big tours going on right now, like Slipknot's going on, Alice Cooper's going on, Megadeth is going on. Like, there's certain people, like, you know, if Dave Mustaine gets it, there's no understudy. But, you know, I think that in Slipknot, you could hide quite a few people. Yeah. <laughs> I know that in Corn they could get a backup guitar player. Like, there's ways around it. And I think that that accounts for tour member. I mean, for crew members too. People need to start thinking in terms of having backups for everything. Almost like having your, like, guitar tech learning the guitar, the set, basically. 
if you have a guitar tech, yeah. Or alternatively, there are some bands that can, for example, get away with being instrumental, especially, you know, in the in the genre that I'm uh, associated with. Or you could even get away with putting on a backing track as well if you play to tracks. In the world that we're currently in, I think people would understand. They'll probably just be happy that you're actually fucking playing. Yes. I mean, it's it's a new reality and for the fans and for the bands. We have to adapt if we want to keep doing this. Otherwise, it's it's going to be really hard till this thing is gone to be able to tour normally. And it's it's so many people and like paychecks involved and people that, that are that are hired for for multiple jobs for these tours and uh, including so many so many people not just the band but like the technicians and all that and as a band organizing the store with the agents you have so much uh, financial responsibilities that it, it would be insane if things stops abruptly or, or you have to cancel like a bunch of gigs like uh, it's always uh, scary to get these things done without too much damage yeah absolutely and i think that look earlier this year like in the summer before Delta variant became a thing or when it was first a thing, it's understandable that tours were just started going as they had before because everyone was kind of living in the clouds a little bit, thinking that you're vaccinated, you're good, everything's going to be fine, we're almost out of this. And we didn't know any better, so it makes sense. But uh, now that we've seen that like this variant shit is real, you can have spikes and waves of COVID, even after people have been vaccinated, I think that it would be dumb and suicidal to not change the way you're doing things and to not adapt. So I think that now there's no excuse for not adapting. Whereas in August, okay, makes sense. People were not prepared for this yet. Now, like, I think everybody knows that this is, this is what we're dealing with. And not that uh, I actually know what the hell I'm talking about, But I have a feeling that this is going to be around for a while. I'm not a scientist, but it's there and it's real and we all got it. So even vaccinated and it's it's there. Yeah, I've had it twice. There's there's no way around it. We have to live with this thing. I think it's just going to be like the common flu, isn't it? I think so. I mean, it's worse than a flu. I think that it's something that we're just going to have to get used to existing. I actually just thought based on that, I read a, a article the other day and it was, um, I can't remember the name of the scale, but they basically see if a disease is able to be eradicated on a certain scale um, based off, you know, diseases that they managed to get rid of. And apparently the coronavirus is pretty low on it. It's, it's lower than smallpox, for example, which was eradicated, obviously. So, I mean, it is possible maybe for it to happen, but I think that it's probably going to be quite difficult with the amount of times that it's mutated. Yeah, that's the problem. So if it keeps mutating, then it's, it's never going to end. I mean, the cold is a coronavirus and... Uh no one's been able to eradicate it. So my hopes are not too high for <laughs> get, getting rid of it. Plus I've had it after being vaccinated. So my feelings and they're just feelings are just, it's going to be around. We're going to have to get used to it. Some years are probably going to be worse than others. Some years are probably going to be mild, but like we as uh, humans in an industry need to just, just deal with reality. But uh, that said, Let's shift topics. I want to talk about songwriting. Lots of times we find that guitar players, especially in metal, tend to focus, over-focus on technical stuff as opposed to songwriting and arrangement. 
which I mean, yeah, you need to know how to play, obviously. I kind of like something that you said in the pre-interview that, you know, your songwriting is your identity as an artist and that uh, basically if you don't have that, nothing else that you do even matters. Yeah, I mean, I mean... So I just wanted to elaborate on that some. I believe that, I believe that statement because it's... Uh, It, it, at the end of the day, that's what makes makes everything happen. Uh, if you have a good song and it's out there, it touches people and uh, uh, it, it just opens up all the doors for you as a musician. Like people will want to see it live. It, it, you get booked to play shows. Um, people will want to hear it, uh, stream it on the platforms where you get some revenue for that. They'll want to, they'll ask for it on the radio. So I, I really believe that the song is the core of a musical career. If, if, and, and it's very, um, it, it, I find it's like, yeah, like, like I, I said, it's, it's your identity as an artist. So it's, um, it's super important to learn uh, how to do that properly and to not be, Boring at it, meaning like you don't want to write songs and a, a, a paint by number type of thing where like it's like, okay, I'm writing a hit. Here's the formula. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put the riffs to it and the notes. Uh, I, I don't think it works like that either. It's, it's it's important to develop your own ways of doing it that it's proper to who you are and as as a musician but also uh, with the bands you're with, like the other guys you're you're playing music with and to be able to come with ways to do that that is your own but also uh, like touches people and it's a uh, super important i think it's really important that guitar players in the new generation especially definitely learn how to write songs i mean no one's going to remember hey you know like let's take acdc you know back in black instantly recognizable you know who played it But no one's going to say, hey, do you remember that 15-second clip on Instagram from 25 years ago? From, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember how good that was? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, just, it's not going to happen, is it? It's like, oh, this guy did this eight-finger tapping lick. And it's only going to be remembered by a very small niche of people, guitar players. Whereas it, I guess it depends on the overall goal of what the person wants that's, you know, doing the guitar playing or the songwriting. Um, but, I mean, I'm, I'm in 100% agreement that songwriting is basically the most important thing about playing the instrument. Yeah, because, I mean, there's good guitar players. They're everywhere. Like, like you just look on social media. There's I see tons of clips, like, every day going through my feed of people playing amazing stuff that blows me away as a guitar player because I'm like, okay, I should probably think about, like, doing something else after watching all these young guys <laughs> yeah. playing, like, those amazing things. But at the end of the day, I, 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 I think that what I've done for myself or in my experience of playing playing music for almost 30 years now is that it comes down to the songwriting. Are you able to write something good that people will relate to? And, uh, and it doesn't have, doesn't mean that it has to be hyper complex or hyper uh, like polished to a like, crazy degree, but just to, to get it done in a way that, that touches people. And, and uh, it's super important to learn how to do that. When we started as a band, I was very terrible at song songwriting or, or arranging music And uh, it's something that you learn over the years. And for me, it was a long process where some people get it right away. It's, it's something very important. I think that even if you are hyper-technical and hyper-polished and that's your thing, 
you still need to know how to compose music that people like. And I, I think a good example is a band like Polyphia. So Polyphia is, you know, they're instrumental. They, uh, it's very uh, technical kind of fusion, almost, I don't know what to call it, fusion gent or something. But uh, I think that the reason that they're successful much more than a lot of other artists in that genre is because they're kind of catchy. Like they're kind of catchy and their shit has repetitive parts that you can remember. No matter how technical it gets, it's still kind of catchy. I think that if you look at any artists in extremely technical music, the ones who have figured out how to write well are the ones that stand out. There's a reason for why Necrophagist with Epitaph still, people still look at that like this amazing piece of work, which it is an amazing piece of work, but there's, it's almost 20 years old. And uh, there's a reason for why that record, instead of a lot of other technical records, is the one that people point to. And I think it's because, not because it's well-played, they're all well-played, it's because it's well-written. Yeah, it's exactly. I'm not I'm not knocking down the technical playing at all. It's just, just not who I am as a guitar player, but I enjoy some of it. And there's like uh, bands making amazing stuff. Like I, I really dig that Interloper band from California and the, 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 the guitar player is insane. And, but they write songs and they have catchy choruses and the structures are amazing. And there's a lot of great artists that are able to do amazing things with that genre. Yeah, but if they can't write, there's just no point, almost. <laughs> so how did you get better at writing? Like, and you said you were terrible at it. How did you become less terrible? I find like it's just by a trial and error and eventually develop a little bit of a second sense about how things should work. So if if I come up with an idea or somebody in the band come up with an idea and you're like, okay, in my mind, I already see a puzzle as opposed to before where it was just simple it was just purely riffs and you go by riff by riff and you attaching them together but uh, without any purpose to it and then eventually you you develop that second sense of purpose for every part of the puzzle and where they go and how to align them together and often I'll, I'll see different ways this could work like you'll you're like okay we could do it this way or we could do it that way and twist things around a little bit with the same parts it's easier for me to to see it now as opposed to before i, I didn't see the big picture at all I, i i just saw the the pieces and it was hard for me to do that and we had like our old drummer he was more intuitive about that thing even though we were kids when we started he was better at, at piecing things together than i was and so we managed to do something that people like from the from the start but it, it wasn't thanks to me <laughs> it, took, it took me years to develop that skill that's an interesting way to look at it though uh, like a puzzle or a rubik's cube that's a good analogy for it because uh people think about traditional song structures like you know verse pre-chorus chorus verse pre-chorus chorus bridge chorus or whatever or you know some variation of that but in a lot of heavier music you do have choruses and you do have verses but You also have a lot of stuff that doesn't fit exactly into that structure, but still has like, you know, the catchy riff or like. Yeah. Uh, sometimes just a cool guitar melody goes a long ways. You throw that in there and, and you can extrapolate on that. Exactly. So it's more like a puzzle that you put together or a Rubik's Cube that you unlock or something like that rather than a traditional song structure. But reason I'm saying that is because I think that 
a lot of people mistakenly believe that you have two options. Option A, stick to a traditional song structure. Option B, just write riff salad bullshit with no structure. And that makes no sense. And I don't think that that's like your only two options. You can write a piece of music that doesn't fit a traditional structure, but still has memorable parts, parts that return or don't return. But like that makes sense where it all flows and is a coherent piece of music. Yeah, yeah. a good example of that would be that new Iron Maiden record. They have a, a lot of songs that are really long and, and they have like, they didn't go for that traditional type structure, but still it's, it's still memorable and still nice to listen to and catchy. I think no matter how you choose to make the puzzle, it's it's about having the the big picture of it and it has to make sense somehow. Like and I think playing with those those pieces it, it makes or break a song for sure. I haven't heard it, but I do agree that a song doesn't have to be short to be good. Yeah, like the pop uh, A B A B A B a bridge chorus thing. <laughs> okay, well there's nothing wrong with you know with the short songs and the traditional structures, but I think that some people are afraid of writing longer stuff because there's these rules and then there's bands in the mainstream also, but there's bands who have entire careers built on long fucking songs. So, and I think that what it comes down to again is just writing stuff that people connect to it. The actual structure or the actual length matters a lot less than how much people are connecting to it. Yeah, if if you're able to keep it interesting for eight minutes long, and it's why not? I mean, it's uh, sometimes it's like a, a journey. You start a song and you you go, you end up being completely somewhere else at the end. I think it's one thing that's cool with with metal in general. It's that you're able to go to places that our jars can't just because you're stuck with a certain uh, standard. But with, with metal, there's no rules. So you can do whatever you want and you can bring the listener where wherever you, you want with you. In my mind, I, I see it in, done in a logical way uh, regardless, but there there's a way to, to, to get there and it, you have to balance all these things when you write, for sure. Seeing bands like Opeth, for instance, mm -hmm. be able to have the career that they've had kind of uh, proves the point to me that You can kind of do whatever you want as long as you do it really well. Exactly. Or uh, another modern example is Igor. Igor is doing great right now. And Igor does some weird fucking shit, but people love it. Like they're doing fucking great. And it just, it goes to show that again, like it doesn't matter if you stick to anything traditional or not, as long as you're doing something that people can connect with. Yeah, I like Igor. They're, they're doing some very cool uh, crossover thing with the opera uh, girl and, and the, tech, the techno drum beats. And it's it's avant-garde stuff that we haven't heard before. And the way they're mixing it together is so passionate and it's so well done. It's, uh, it's, it's cool. It's cool to have like creative mind coming up with stuff like that. It's refreshing. Yeah, it's not very often that I hear something that I feel like I've never heard before. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like something that, uh, that like I legitimately have never heard anything like it before. My first introduction to that band and we played the, the metal camp open air in Slovenia and, and they were playing a couple of bands before us. And I, I stood there on the side of the stage and I watched the whole set and I got 
<laughs> not mystified, but I was like, wow. <laughs> like that that's one band that blew me away live. And um so I, I got more interested into in their music and I thought it was super interesting the way they did do things. So they can do it live just as well. I figured they could. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was really special to see. I figured. I like you can hear it from the recordings that it's not bullshit. The the girl she really sings and the the, the main guy also the the, the guy that, that that sings the the different types of voice is really good at it. Great guitar player. They had the the live drummer too is 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 awesome. They're pretty phenomenal. They remind me of uh of the energy Mr. Bungle had in the nineties. I don't know if you like them or not, but uh, I feel like uh, there was a certain energy that Mr. Bungle had where they were doing stuff that was insane, but also kind of like super aggressive, super aggressive and super passionate, but like really good music. People didn't really understand how they pieced it all together, but somehow they did. And I haven't really necessarily seen anyone do that with weird ass music really well since. I'm paying them a, a huge compliment. So what about tone? Where do you see tone fitting in to all this? Well, that's another thing because I mean if your music sounds good and and it sounds killer, uh I, I think it brings another layer to uh, another dimension to the actual music. So some albums I, I listen to purely because it sounds so good that I'm like, I can't not listen to this because the guitar's crushing and the production and the way it's mixed and all that. So I'm really into that that world as well. But I find it's important to as a musician to find your own identity. Don't try to replicate the same thing that other ba- guys did, even if it worked for them. I think it's important to find your own uh, your own voice and all that. And um, it's. Of course, it's, it's a never-ending quest. You, you start your career uh, thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to sound like this, but then you try so many amps and so many pedals and so many types of effects. You keep changing things in your rig and it never ends. But I find it I find it's a part of a, being an artist. I really enjoy that search for the ultimate tone. It's the same for me. When an album sounds amazing or a guitar tone sounds amazing, I have to listen to it. But at the same time, I think that when it's a good song, I think songwriting still triumphs over good tone. Totally agree with you. Songwriting, it wins overall. <laughs> but if you can get both, like uh, that's that's like the ultimate. Like You get the sound and you get that the songwriting. Everything's perfect. Well, okay, I do think that songwriting and tone are two separate things. But I do think that it's all... Like the big picture, like the way you present a song to the world, it's all kind of linked together. Kind of. Kind of. Well, the way something sounds affects the way you play it, right? The way you play it affects the way it feels. The way it feels might not be affecting the notes that are written, but it definitely affects the way that people are going to take the song in and whether they connect with it or not. True, but also there's. I've got one example where I think the guitar tone is quite possibly the worst thing I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) But I listen to the album because it's the songwriting is absolutely incredible and it's not in the metal genre, so I do apologize about this, but it's uh, The Cranberries, the the album Ode to My Family, like, you know, with Zombie and all those other great songs on it. And when you listen to that guitar tone coming on Zombie in particular, it is absolutely the most nasty, disgusting sound ever. But I love that song. (laughs) So I I think that 
it is kind of one in the same, but also not entirely. I think that you can exclude tone from it if the song is badass. Mm-hmm. I mean, a song is a song. And sometimes, like, even a bad tone fits in the... That's true as well. ...imagery of the, the, the whole thing. Like, it wouldn't be the same without that ridiculously bad tone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you also don't know what's, what that album would sound like with a good tone because... Uh, You haven't heard it with a good tone. That's also so, very true. And it also might just be that it, I'm reminiscing on my childhood or something as well. I do agree that great songs are the biggest, most important thing. But also these albums that have great songs with bad tones, I don't think that that really proves the point that tone doesn't matter because you haven't heard it with a good tone. So you can't, you can't know if a good tone would detract from the songs. If anything, the great album might be even greater. It's just... The songs are so good that you listen to it despite that tone, or they're so good that like you get used to it, and then you just this is how you know it. You don't know it any different. And That's even true. if people were to do a remix, you know, it's interesting when these classic albums get the remixes with the better tones. Like I always hate that shit. It loses um, the magic, doesn't it? Almost, not always, but almost always. Sometimes it was better, but like, uh, but like, oftentimes it's not. What I don't like is when they quantize stuff like from the old masters and they like put everything yeah. to the grid and they make it like, oh, it's this new song, but then it's, it loses a bit of the intention. You know what? So I'm gonna I'm going to just totally contradict myself because uh, <laughs> Christian Donaldson remixed um, some Cryptopsy on Nail the Mix from the Nun So Vile, but not he didn't like fix the drums or anything like that. He just remixed it. He did it the way it was intended to. Yeah. Dude, it sounded fucking amazing. But those weren't new tones really or anything. It was just a modern mix. I guess I guess my point is just that great songs do matter, but like we don't know what a record would sound like if it had certain elements better because we only know what, what we have in front of us. Do you reckon it also comes down to personal preference as well? Like, just because we don't like something doesn't mean it's not good. Yes. Yeah, because that may be, you know, that guitar tone on that album that I'm talking about, some people might think that's the best fucking thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> There also might be different priorities. Also, or different intention that maybe I haven't fully understood. What do you love about that album? It's like mainly the vocals, right? No, I, I love the whole thing. The slamming riffs? No, it's not about the riffs. It's about how everything just works together. The intention. You know, if you actually think about like what that album's about, I mean, when you think about it from that perspective, yeah, that guitar tone works because it makes you think about that because it's so horrible and gross <laughs> <laughs> i shouldn't say it's horrible and gross it's an amazing record but yeah basically i think that maybe it's just the intention is something that i haven't quite fully grasped but haven't you both noticed that when you have a sick guitar tone like one that like makes you feel good when you're playing it that you then play with better feel which then affects the way that the song is especially when you're recording, like it just, the song comes out better. Yeah, for definitely for me, it's, it is like that in the sense that when I get excited about the sound, I definitely play better because I'm like, I'm more into it. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I get those big chunks in and I, 
I, I'm, a, I'm a chug guy. I'm not going to lie. So whenever <laughs> it, it starts to chug or gent, I'm like, chug, chug, chug. yeah. <laughs> Makes me happy about what I do. And I probably end up doing it better. What about you, Brian? Yeah, I think that's the case, actually. It's, it's weird. For me, my tastes kind of are constantly evolving when it comes to guitar tone. And a good example of that is I have absolutely despised 150% more the, the, the feel of a 5150 okay. amp. And it always felt really slow reacting to me. Like it okay. felt it felt wrong always. But then on the latest album and song, I've used a 5150. <laughs> <laughs> and I found one that I liked. Like I think that... It's so personal they're, from time periods. Yeah. But say even for 5150, they're not all built the same. I've played with some that are amazing and I played with some that are horrible, uh, depending on the year they were made or the, the places that the factory they used or whatever. And I, 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 I'm saying this because I'm a 5150 guy. That's my amp of choice. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I, I've encountered some that are completely bad and then some are like amazing i have encountered some that are both <laughs> depending on what time of day it is <laughs> I, i'm not kidding so yeah. my block letter will sound different at different times not like not like on a schedule but like it just sometimes it sounds amazing sometimes it sounds like shit <laughs> and you don't know which one you're gonna get it's sad well, that's a, that comes down to like tolerance level of components as well. Like in the you know the time period that they were built, early nineties, the tolerance level was a lot higher than it is now. Tolerance for shitty tone. Okay. <laughs> 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 yeah, of course. That's why they sound so different. The tolerance level of like the you know now chips are like within what three to five percent. I think. And then when you go to the more expensive ones, it's even less. Whereas in the nineties, it was like twenty percent they were allowed tolerance. And then if you divide that up by an entire amp and all the components, that's why every single one sounds really, really different. Like, yes, the overall sort of tonal structure is very similar, but how it reacts to how you play is very different. And uh, another good example of that is when you plug a Mesa Boogie in in, uh, in America versus 240 volts of Europe. It sounds completely different to me, which is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. The power, the electrical power, that's a big thing. Because I remember uh, the first Euro tours we've done and I ordered my rig and then I plug it in. I'm like, oh my God, it sounds like total crap. <laughs> and, and I couldn't figure out why. And because, just because I was used to one thing and then there are so many variables that uh, will make an amp sound a certain way. And uh, so I agree to that. I got, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of those uh, digital profilers, things like the, like the camper and stuff, because I find it's the only thing that's uh, consistent across the board, even though it's not the ultimate thing, but it, at least the consistency of it is very, uh, I find practical for me. Maybe you're trading, and not always. I've heard some camper tones that are better than the amps that they're profiling, but if you tweak them, but I feel like you're trading the possibility of having something better for something that is almost as good, but is going to be the same every time, which is a huge benefit. I think it's way easier. Yeah. For me, it is because, you know, you, you expect uh, like a certain thing and then uh, the, the fans that show up at their shows, they expect something from you and you have to deliver every night. And for me, it made it made things, it made my life much better, uh, this new technology. And, uh, well, it's not so new anymore, but it's, uh, 
it made things easier and, and consistent. There's a lot to be said for consistency. Um, I think that that is actually one of the things that people say is one of the main reasons for why they prefer like using, you know, a DAW as opposed to, or mix in the box as opposed to um, out of the box is for speed and recallability. But the one thing that they don't say that often, which I think they're thinking is consistency because uh, this analog gear, you never know how it's going to sound. You just don't. It's going to sound different at different times. And you also don't know if you buy the same piece, <laughs> if it's going to sound the same as the other one you bought. Exactly. Like you just don't know. Whereas, uh, you know, you do have all the convenience of being able to open up sessions exactly the way that they were, but you also have this consistency that you can rely on, which is amazing in my opinion. I find consistency is, is something very important to, to this world. And uh, as a guitar player and also same as, as a producer, mixer guy, like people come to you and they expect something, you got to be able to deliver. So something consistent is always uh, better for me. Even if it's, like you said, perhaps maybe a few percent less good as it could be if you use the real thing. And that's a maybe. That's not even a definite, in my opinion. I'm not saying that, like, there's not great tube amps. We all know that there are, and there's great hardware out there. But to me, it's a maybe that you're going to necessarily do better with one. Like, you might, but you also might not. But the thing that is for sure is that the digital stuff is be consistent. So I like <laughs> the idea of being able to rely on something. I'm just going to be devil's advocate here. Do it. Okay. <laughs> and the one thing that's always terrified me about playing, well, I mean, I use a Helix Live in conjunction with an amp and I use the Helix for effects and then clean sounds direct to the PA. So it is, you know, it's almost, it's direct as well as distortion through a cab. Now, the one thing that always really concerns me is if it breaks on tour, it's not as simple as changing a fuse or changing a tube. It's like, that's game over completely yes and uh, that is more terrifying to me than taking a tube amp <laughs> the way i see this is like like say for my rig i always i i travel with with two campers in case the first one fails so i have a backup one but if both of them fails then i could still pull a show and whatever amp they have there but it would probably not be as as good or as perfect But I always try to be ready to that eventuality because I know uh, technology breaks and it happens uh, more, of, more often than we would like. So it's uh, <laughs> you, you always have to be prepared for that moment where it's like, oh, no. <laughs> it's not actually the technology that bothers me. It's actually the TSA throwing it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Nothing you can do about that. But <laughs> I always toured with a backup amp. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or almost always. And that a lot heavier than a, a backup modeler very true yeah that's a that's an expensive uh, if you have, you have like a big gear like this you have to ship it or even like if you carry it on planes that's even crazier it's it's expensive speaking of backups you know i've never traveled with a backup guitar what what <laughs> yeah that's that's bold <laughs> yeah man you've got some balls holy shit <laughs> there's a reason for it right so we play you know six seven and eight string guitars in our set And we have one of those three-way cases. So I can fit one six-string, one seven-string, and one eight-string, and that's it. <laughs> so you've already got three guitars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we're in Europe, I might bring one or two others just in case. If we're flying to the States, there's no way for me to have a backup. And 
yeah, it's terrifying. So, you know, I'd like a backup of something. I'd take a backup <laughs> amp, but I've never taken a backup guitar. So what do you do? You just have never had a problem? I just don't break strings. It's a oh, choice. Okay. All right. There, there you go. Just <laughs> pro- problem solved. Just don't break strings. Perfect. If you don't have any Floyd Rose system or something like that, then you can get away with it. You know, it's a very quick change if something happens. Yeah, true. Two minutes in a set. Like if you've got a Floyd Rose, then you're kind of fucked with a fixed bridge. Like if it, if a string breaks, I'll, I'll make my way through the song as best as I can and then stop the backing track, quickly get a string, put it on, stretch it, done. That is a two-minute ordeal. Once once I flew to Mexico City. Okay, the, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was just a quick one-off show, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to bring one guitar. They were giving me amps over there, so I didn't bring nothing else, just my, my one guitar and a, a tube screamer to plug it into quickly. And uh, I landed there, opened my case, and the uh, headstock was like... <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> Fuck. Had to call um, ESP to see if they had like anybody that could lend me a guitar like last minute. And finally, my rep from ESP knew somebody that works at Gibson, Mexico, that brought me a Gibson Flying V just for the show. <laughs> and I had, to, I had to deal with it and I had to set it up like real quick, like an hour before we went on. <laughs> and um, that was, yeah, that was my, one of the only times I traveled with one guitar and that stuff happened. <laughs> so Murphy's Law, uh, since then I'm always like at least two guitars minimum. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine going from an ESP, the thinnest, slickest net, mm-hmm. and then being Gibson. presented with the baseball bats that is a Gibson neck <laughs> yeah minute. it was like a, okay <laughs> rock and roll show must go on but you, you do your best you know? <laughs> man that must have been terrifying <laughs> so it just it just sucks you know because i i do love my instruments even if i'm lucky enough to have a an endorsement so i get some free stuff but still like your your art breaks a little when things like that happen. You're like, no. <laughs> and uh, okay, I I really love my instruments and I I feel a connection to them when I play. So, uh, but uh, thankfully the SP guys at the at the shop they did a fantastic job fixing it for me and it feels like it's brand brand new again. But it's uh, it's always a little heartbreaking to see something like that happen. <laughs> yeah, I've broken a few guitars, but the first time it happened was the most traumatic, for sure. Because I was uh, 14. My first guitar was a Fender Squire, which I hated. And uh, so I saved up all summer long for a Les Paul. Ah, uh, that's the problem right there. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But I worked hard to get that thing. And by the end of the summer, I had enough money and I bought it. That night, I took it to a friend's house and was like showing it off. And then I stood it up against the wall and like went and got something and it like slid down the wall and just like tapped a cabinet and the neck just came right the fuck off first day first day first day yeah first day (laughs) yeah oh man i'm sorry for laughing i can't help it it's pretty hilarious It's, it's pretty hilarious yeah that was uh my introduction to gibson's they're iconic they sound great and yeah just it's a shame that the they're, they're so fragile. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have nothing against Gibson guitars. It's, it's just like, like you said, you're used to something. So it's hard to switch from something to something else. But they're, they're great guitars. I learned playing guitar on a, on a Gibson V. 
And uh, that's where I I got my love for Flying V because then for me going back to a normal shape guitar is weird. And just because I, I like the V positioning, but I, I got used to the ESP uh, necks and, and fretboard and all that. So it's, it's for me, it's for sure a part of my sound as a player. I definitely do think that the guitars that we pick and how they feel in our hands affect people's tone in a big, big way. Like I've always kind of thought that, but then when I really got heavy into recording was when I really realized it, that every single aspect of the guitar, and I also include the pick Mm -hmm. in in that. So like everything um, from the pick size, pick material, pick angle, pick shape, to, uh, you know, gauge of the strings, to the type of wood to how uh, how easy it is for the guitar player to play that instrument. Like every single little detail makes a big difference in the end when it comes to somebody's sound and tone. Yeah, I agree. I agree because you, you kind of somehow become one with the instrument itself and it's uh, it makes you play a certain way. And if you're comfortable and you're able to... Uh, do what you whatever you it is you do in in a way that you don't have to worry about the the instruments because you understand how it reacts to what you do it it makes it it makes a, a huge difference in the tone it does however i will say that i have as a producer like imposed things on guitar players that they weren't comfortable with uh like maybe use a thicker pick for mm-hmm. this kind of riff and they weren't comfortable with going up to that size pick. So I would leave the room for like 15 or 20 minutes and let them practice or even 30 minutes so that they would get comfortable with it. So at the end of the day, like it is down to what the player becomes comfortable with. But I do think a good player given enough time will be able to adapt to anything reasonable. Yeah, true. Do you give me any type of gear? I'll still find a way to make it sound decent. And, and and sound like me because a lot of it starts from the picking hand I believe as well but uh, there's when you, when you play with something that you're comfortable with and that's like the ultimate setup for what you do it it's so much better I think so let's talk about the picking hand some I heard Brown say yup when you said that you believe that everything starts with the picking hand it always starts and ends with the picking hand it's the last point of contact before the guitar gets amplified. It's the most important thing. I agree. This is just choosing the notes. This is defining the notes, the intent. Yeah, because you, you could have like a, like the best setup and if, if the, the player at the, the, the beginning of everything doesn't hit it right, it's just not going to cut through the way it should. An example of that, and not to elevate myself above a, a certain status here, but I a lot of people that likes my sound, they'll be like, hey, uh, I love your tone. What do you do? And I'm, I, I plug them right in there and they try it. And for some people, it totally doesn't work just because they don't pick the way I do. The, the start of a tone really comes from the end. I believe it. A hundred percent. Actually, John Brown and I have a funny story with that. Brown, like, remember when Finn and I started that online store back in, like, 2015? Yeah, the the tone pack. We sold your tone pack, yeah. Brown used to use, what is it, Pod Pro? or For that particular pack, it was a Pod HD. Okay, but those were the tones from the album, right? Oh, no, the XT ones were from the album. 
the XT. So, because we did both, didn't we? Okay, yeah. So we used the actual tones from the album, and the album tone sounds pretty huge. People bought them and entered them into, you know, loaded them into their pods and tried playing, and were like, "You sold me this? the wrong thing." <laughs> yeah, is is this it? It sounded like shit for a lot of players. Your tone is at least that one uh, was designed for how you play, so uh, it would like took into consideration how hard you pick, and uh, and if you pick like you do, it sounds great. But if you pick like a pussy. It's not going to sound great. And so we got a lot of angry people saying that we sold them the wrong tones, but we didn't. We sold them exactly the right tones. It's just uh, can't sell them Brown's picking hand. <laughs> I still use those as well, just so you know, for when I'm writing, because it just works. Like it's home. It's like what we were talking about. You get used to certain things and the way that it reacts and the way that it feels when you play it. So I still, from, I've had those tones since, what, 2012? And I still use them now just because they feel like home. Yeah, it definitely didn't miss it. But then I've, I've put people through this patch, even in my studio, and it doesn't sound the same. <laughs> no. <laughs> Send them to me. I'd, I'd be curious to try. Have you, have you, got, an, have you got an XT? Uh, no, I do not, but I could get my hands on one. You should, because they are, they are, a, they are a, a gem, a holy grail of Line 6, in my opinion. There was something very right about it. I can't put my hand on it because I wasn't the biggest fan of the HD Pro, but the XT and the Helix is great as well. But the, even the XT still has some stuff on it that I use over the Helix. Yeah, I'm curious. I'll uh, I'll try that. Yeah, the XT was great. And then everyone's now going to buy one and it's going to be worth way more money, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of use out of my XT. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a, even even if, you, you know, the Joel and Joey were all about Pod Farm, weren't they? And the... XT series. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, I think it's a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out. It's been awesome catching up with you. Uh, thank you so much for this uh, opportunity to talk to you guys again. And uh, John, nice to meet you again. Nice to meet you again as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's been great. But uh, thank you guys. Thank you. So one thing out of many that I thought was interesting was that he wasn't originally, I guess you would say, a natural at putting songs together. He was just writing the death metal riff salad. And through that collaboration with his drummer, he got better at it. Like the drummer knew how to piece things together. And I've always thought that in lots of ways, we're as good as our collaborations are. Yeah, definitely. I mean, another one that comes to mind about drummers arranging songs is um, Dream Theater. Mike Portnoy was exceptionally good at it as well. I don't know if you've watched any of the, the videos where um, they're songwriting in their rehearsal spot and you see him write it out um, on a big whiteboard and, you know, the Meshuggah riff. And <laughs> I can't remember the name of the video, but I've seen that a lot of drummers are actually really good at that. And I think it's because they understand how things come together rhythmically as well, which maybe guitar players aren't necessarily focused on from the very beginning. Yeah, my drummer in Doth was very good at that too. Like I would write and then we would write together and he would always help me. Sometimes we would write from scratch together. Sometimes he would just help me like piece things together in a way that I just couldn't. Mike is also really good at that and so was uh, Swanee actually. I think it's because it's the rhythm section. 
<laughs> yeah, man, it makes a big difference because we can, it's almost like we're like blind past the edges of our own ideas in a way. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just like, we can't see past our own ideas. We just can't. Sometimes our ideas are strong enough or big enough to cover everything that needs to be covered, but sometimes they're incomplete in the context of a song or a bigger creation. And we need that help from a collaborator to get it to where it needs to be. I think it's always good having a, a second or even more set of ears to go over what you've done. I mean, sometimes we get demoitis. Sometimes we get lost in our own imagination. It's not, you know, we get, we're bound by the limits of our imagination. And sometimes it just needs some extra help, especially if you've been listening to it or playing it for so long, trying to get it right. Yeah. And not everybody has that available to them. Like not everybody has a sick ass band member to work with. Some people are in between bands. Some people have not been in bands yet. Some people are in bands, but their band members suck, but like <laughs> not, <laughs> you know, there's that option too, but, uh, not everybody has, uh, that person to work with, uh, which is what's cool about Riff Rescue. It's where, you know, we get live over on riffhard.com and we basically, whether it's me or our guest guitar player will show you what we would do to your ideas to make it better. Yeah. So basically subscribers will submit unfinished songs, basically ideas. They could even be complete songs that they think are finished, but they might need the extra bit of fairy dust on the top. Fair enough. Yeah. And uh, you get to see what having John Brown as your writing partner would be like. <laughs> or in this case, this month, it's Mr. Dean Lamb from Arch Bias. Yeah. They're not going to rewrite your riff for you, but they're going to help you take it to where it could go and show you things that you probably hadn't thought of, which is what a good collaborator does. Yes. So if you want want better riffs, want to finish those damn songs, riffhard.com, check out Riff Rescue, and uh, talk to you next week, bro. See you next week, mate. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.